morning. Give me a second to transition from guitarist mode to preacher mode. Need the notes. Yep, there it is. All right. Now. Now I'm preaching. Um, I really wanted that. Okay. Uh, So, as you know, we're going through the Gospel of John. Thank you. And um, can we pull this light down just a little bit? I um, I don't like squinting all the time. Um, so we're starting this, this series last week called Believing Jesus, where we're going through the Gospel of John. And it might feel a little unnatural. I think a lot of us want to insert a word in between those two words. We want to say believing in Jesus. But what we did is actually really intentional. We're saying believing Jesus. And there's a small but important difference here. And the, the difference is, if, I, uh, if I'm talking to Drew and he tells me something, there's a difference between walking away from that saying, I believe in Drew, and saying, I believe Drew. One of them is saying, I believe in his existence. Uh, the other one is believing, I believe what he said. I trust him. The first, believing in something treats it like an object. But believing something is a personal type of intimacy. And that's what we're shooting for here, and that's what we're getting in the Gospel of John. We're getting these interpersonal interactions with Jesus where we get to see him interacting with people, and the challenge left to us is do we believe who Jesus says he is? So um, with that, uh, I'll just open us in prayer here before we dive into the Word. Um, Father God, thank you for this morning, for those that you've gathered in your name. Um, Just pray that you would speak to us through your Word, that you would uh, illuminate it for us that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would use this word uh, not just to increase our knowledge but to shape our hearts, um, that you would use it to mold us and shape us into the people that you would have us be. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So I have a confession, and I realize we already did the time of confession, uh, which I did confess it then, and now I'll confess it to you. Uh, I was not on the schedule to preach this week, uh, but I got it. Uh, you know, in the early middle part of the week, and I mean, I saw the text. I was like, "Man, I don't want to teach that story." Uh, I was, I've always thought this story is a little uninteresting. Is there anyone else? I know that you, you know, I'm not allowed to say that as a pastor, but is there anyone else who always thought this this wedding story is a little underwhelming? Uh, no one. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sound booth has got me again. They're the only ones at first service. But here's the thing, and, and I found someone who agreed with me. Not in this building. Um, but Reynolds Price, who is a professor at Duke University in literature, and he wrote about the Gospels uh, in a book that he wrote. And in them, he was talking about this story in particular. And he said, you know, it's a weird way to start Jesus' public ministry. It's a weird way to tell a story. Because if you were making a story up, and he's saying this is how you know it's true. But if you were making a story up, and you've got a guy who performs miracles like raising the dead and healing the sick uh, and doing all these other things, why in the world would you make up a story about him turning water into wine at, at somebody's wedding? Why would that be the first thing? And that's a great question. And that's what we're going to look at. Um, and so I, as I was looking through this week, um, there's, if you want to read more about this story, there are a couple of great places to turn, but one is this tiny little book called Encounters with Jesus by Tim Keller that I found really, really helpful. Um, and he goes through different encounters with Jesus, like the name says. Um, 
So first, let's, let's start with the text. I'd invite you to open your Bibles, because um, this is going to be a lot of work for the screen people, because uh, we're going to go back and forth between uh, the text. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 2, <coughs> Excuse me, and read along with me. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars of water there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So there's a couple, there's a lot of things I want to talk about, and there's um, some I get to say this morning and some I don't get to. But the first one I want to call your attention to is this word sign. We're going to go through the signs of Jesus. And if you've noticed the artwork on our devotional, there's one for the signs. And this is a really intentional choice because I've often frequently heard this referred to as the miracle of water and wine, the miracle at Galilee, uh, or at Cana. And it is a miracle. It's a miraculous thing he did. But that's not the word that John chooses. A miracle is simply a, something that uh, you know, supersedes uh, scientific natural explanation. But he calls this a sign, which means the miracle is not the end into itself. A sign points to something. A sign is saying there's something bigger, something more important coming. And this is just showing you what's coming. And so we need to remember that, first of all, it's a sign. Uh, and so you say, it's a sign of what? That's a fair question. Now, wine runs out at a wedding, and I know what I'm about to say may shock many of you, but weddings were a bigger deal in Jesus' day than in ours. And I know, I know. We have TV shows with multi-million dollar weddings and bridezillas competing for, you know, uh, all the craziest, most eccentric stuff you can think of. But the reason... Um, these weddings in the first century were such a big deal. It's because, yes, there was romantic love involved, but there was much, much more. Weddings meant the strengthening and thriving of a community. Weddings, or weddings produce marriages. Marriages produce children. Children become workers and soldiers, and the town's economy would thrive and grow, and they would become stronger and more secure. So this means that a, any wedding in the town is reason for celebration for everyone in the town. And so that's why you see these week-long uh, celebrations that were so common back then. And so, um, now to run out of wine early on in a week-long wedding celebration where everyone is celebrating the thriving and, and flourishing um, is a much bigger deal than what would happen at my reception if we ran out of wine uh, because it was only three hours. It's like, well, if we ran out of wine, you can just go home. Um, in fact, that day I was pretty ready to send people home. Um, I was tired and I wanted to nap. Um, 
but it's not an extreme, it's not just an extreme faux pas. You know, this is not just a socially embarrassing situation that Jesus is saving them from because in our culture, we live in a culture that is based largely on individual achievement. That's where we find our sense of identity. That's where we find our sense of meaning. But first century ancient Near Eastern culture was a shame and honor based culture. Everything you did brought shame or honor. And it's not just to you because your identity is more based in your family unit and in your community. And so if you do something wrong, it's bringing shame not just to you, but to both families involved and essentially to the entire community. So this is actually a big matter for the entire community. This is not just, uh, oh, someone forgot to pick up the extra thing of wine. And so uh, you can imagine the the stress that this caused, because I can tell you, having only been married two years ago, um, to the week actually, um, but we spent nine months preparing everything, calculating the right amount of stuff to buy it for a three-hour reception. For a week-long reception, you can imagine how much stress there would be. Um, and so it, it's a big deal. Running out of wine, is, it's a bigger deal than we probably anticipate. Uh, and so we need to understand the context. But the next scene, starting in verse 4 and 5, is what should strike us as somewhat odd. And I'll read it to you again. And Jesus, uh, 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 this verse 3, when, when the wine ran, went, wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. Uh, now, this is not a text that we use on Mother's Day. <laughs> this is, um, and it's uncomfortable, isn't it? This should strike you as a strange encounter. Uh, and it'll be even stranger when we unpack it a little bit. What's, what's surprising here, and, and there's a couple things that are surprising. First of all, in the Gospel of John, the mother of Jesus, Mary, is only in two scenes. And this is half of them. So this is half of Mary's time in the Gospel. The other half is at the cross, where he says, Woman, behold your son. Um, and so... Uh, it, it seems like a strange choice. It's like you're going to involve his mother, and then he's going to talk to her like this, and we're trying to figure out what this is. Um, and so the way that this is translated in English, it sounds a little rude. Um, and it is supposed to strike us as a little cutting. It's a little colder than what we would normally expect from Jesus. It's not rude. Um, and so some English translations, if you're holding an NIV, they've tried to um, tidy it up a little bit. They added dear woman. Uh, to the front. Uh, so that sounds, sounds a little nicer. But what's actually happening here is that uh, it's more likely the case that Jesus' mind is somewhere else. He's a little distracted and it kind of snaps him back. And so I have a story about this. And, and was, uh, on Wednesday this week was the first day of the week that I started working on uh, my sermon for today. And I had a bunch of meetings earlier in the week, and I had a couple of meetings on Wednesday. And so I was starting to feel the stress pile up because I haven't put pen to paper yet. And my wife, Susan, texts me and is freaking out because there's a mouse in our apartment. And I think my exact words were, woman, what does this have to do with me? <laughs> now, <laughs> there's right and wrong times to quote Jesus. I will submit to you that that was a wrong time. Or at least the wrong text. But the reason I said it wasn't to be rude. The reason I said it was because I was distracted. 
My mind was somewhere else. I was busy. I was thinking about something else and was very distracted and just thought, what? we have two cats. Just uh, turn them loose. You know, this like, I've already dealt with this. Um, and by the way, our cat, uh, I did teamwork with one of our cats to catch it. And then we had another one Friday. And we, yeah, anyway. Um, but the cats and I worked together and dealt with the, the, the mouse. But eventually Jesus does deal with what's being brought to his attention here. But we have this odd response first. But here's the strange thing. It says, uh, you know, uh, I, I hate to read it again because it sounds so funny. But woman, what does this have to do with me? Then listen, my hour has not yet come. And if you read John's gospel, you'll see over and over again, and hopefully you are reading it every day with our devotional, um, free plug for believingjesus.net and our printed uh, devotionals. We'll take you through the gospel of John along with our sermon series, and I think you'll read all of John if you stick with that. But throughout John, you'll see Jesus keep saying this over and over again, my hour, my hour, my hour. And what is his hour? It's his crucifixion. It's his death. So what is it about this scene where Jesus' mother comes and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine, and Jesus says, why are you talking to me about this? I'm not ready to die. What? You're like, who said anything about that? And so that's the oddity that we have to, to wrestle with here. And so uh, he, he talks about his hour and, and, and is pointing to his death, and this begs the question, you know, why, why are empty bottles of wine making him think about his death? And here's, uh, here's the best guess, but I think this makes the most sense. Here's what Jesus was thinking. Jesus is hearing her question. He says, you want me to take away their guilt? You want me to take away their shame and their embarrassment and their humiliation? I'm not ready to die yet. But that's his ultimate purpose. That's what he came to do. And he knows that he's going to do that. And he knows where and when he's going to do that. And he knows it's not yet. But he says, ultimately, if you really want me to fix this, that's what it's going to cost. That's what it takes. And so there's, there's actually um, another interpretation uh, of kind of what's going through his mind here. And I think this is not incompatible with the one I just gave you. But th- there was a woman I was reading, and, and she said it this way. She asked this question. She said, what do single people think about at weddings? They think about their wedding. You walk around the reception towards the end, and you see single people kind of staring off into space, and they're thinking about their wedding. And she says, maybe this is what Jesus was thinking about. He's thinking about his wedding. And his wedding, as we know, you know, from the rest of the New Testament, is he is the groom and the bride is his church. It's his people. And they're bought with a price. And he acquires his church through his death. So once again, all signs for Jesus point to his hour, his coming hour. And uh, I would say, you know, in light of these things, all this weighing on him, his response starts to make a little more sense. And then as we go on, um, and, and here's, by the way, this is how you, the next verse is how you can tell that he wasn't being rude to her because she doesn't respond as if he has said something rude. Um, and so there's just a little, little bit of context that helps you out there. Um, and so Jesus then continues in, in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and, and they filled them to the brim. And so it's not insignificant here what Jesus is doing. This, too, is part of the sign. And you say, well, now how is filling jars of water a sign? Well, look at what the jars are jars of Jewish purification rituals. And what we know from, from the book of Hebrews, if you read on in the New Testament, 
is that all of the Old Testament ceremonial law is ultimately fulfilled by Jesus. And Jesus is saying, take these, this Old Testament system of cleansing, and I'm going to use it to bring joy. I'm going to produce joy from the Old Testament system of ceremonial law. And so how he does that, you know, will unfold as we continue to read the gospel. Um, but, you know, Hebrews 9.14 says, you know, if water from jars can clean us, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our, purify our conscience to serve the living God? And so Jesus is, in essence, here saying that the entire Old, Tis- Old Testament ceremonial system of cleansing and purifying is pointing to him and that he alone can fulfill it. He can fulfill it, and he will become our cleansing. And so then we go to the the final section of this story with the master of ceremonies. And and here we get to see that what Jesus brings to the party is literally the best thing the party has seen. So it says, when the master of feasts, or the steward, as he's called here uh, on the screen, um, he tasted the water that now had become wine. It did not know where it had came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And what's happening, you could say, in a sense here, is so that the um, steward, as we're calling him here, is probably best translated to the master of ceremonies. He's the MC for the event. Everything that happens goes through him. He makes sure everybody's having a good time, and he's kind of coordinating everything. And in a sense... Jesus is saying, you know, I'm the true master of the banquet. I'm the true master of the feast. I'm the one that's bringing the, the best uh, for our guests. And so when you read in Matthew's gospel, um, a couple different ways that the kingdom of God is likened to a wedding banquet. You see the glorious continuity uh, between the gospels and you get a small glimpse of what Jesus intends to do to the world. So the water that was in those jars could make you clean for a while but the gift offered by Jesus provided perfect cleansing of sin. And beyond sin, it doesn't just clean us of sin, but he brings joy. What he brings is to be celebrated. And I know that joy is something we don't uh, talk about as much in the Presbyterian church as some circles. But when the text mandates it, you have to talk about it. And Jesus is bringing joy. He's not just taking away sins, which would be amazing in and of itself. That's what the cleansing was for. But he's saying... I'm not going to offer cleansing once and for all, and the end result is going to be better than you could have possibly imagined. And so, this is what Jesus does. This is who John tells us that Jesus is. He takes what is grossly insufficient from us and turns it into something more wonderful than we could have anticipated. Now, for most of us, our biggest problem isn't running out of wine. We suffer all kinds of brokenness. And at the cross, Jesus takes upon himself all of our pain, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our humiliation, and he renews us into something that we didn't even know was possible. And so, uh, in a sense, you know, we, we get to see the whole picture of the biblical story being depicted here through this sign. You know, God's good creation in, in, one in, in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, and then Genesis 3, we, from there on we deal with sin, and then Jesus comes into the world to fulfill the penalty for all of that sin, and then brings joy. And that's the final chapter that we're looking forward to is when he comes to redeem and renew and restore all of creation. And so what we should take from this, among many other things, is uh, who 
Jesus is, and Jesus defines himself by what he came to do. That's why he talks about his hour. And in light of this, Jesus is not a 12-step program for sin management. We can laugh, but that's serious. That's out there. He's not a 12-step program for sin management. He is the decisive solution to the world's ultimate problem. This sign of Jesus points to his future work on the cross. And the question then posed to us as the readers is, do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? Can he do this? Did he do this? And what does it mean? Belief is the issue at stake for John, and it's belief that he challenges us with throughout his gospel. And if you start now, we're still only in chapter 2, so start with your devotional and get a pen and a Bible that you don't mind marking up and just circle belief every time John talks about it, and you will be amazed how central the theme emerges from his gospel. But he's challenging us with it. He's saying, and then at the end he says, you know, I've written this so that uh, you believe, blessed are those who have seen it and believed it, but even more so those who haven't seen it and read about it and believed it, which is us. Um, and so many people, though, um, uh, perhaps some of us, even in this room, have not thought about Jesus like this before. Many of us think of him as an, an excellent teacher, a great counselor, a wonderful friend, perhaps a healer. And while he is those things, he is much, much more than any of those things. Uh, He is first and foremost, as John introduces him in chapter 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the question for us today, is this the relationship you have with Jesus? Is he just a teacher? Is he just a counselor? Is he just a healer? Is he just your friend? Or is he the one who can take all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your pain and humiliation? He can take those things away and produce something that's even better than what you could have imagined. Will you please join me in prayer? Father God, we we thank you for your text, uh, especially when when we don't find it uh, striking at first. Uh, We're thankful for the work of your Holy Spirit to uh, guide us in understanding your text and and draw us closer to yourself and provide greater understanding. Uh, We just pray that that you would use this word to sharpen us um, as we sharpen each other and you've given us each other. Uh, we now lift up uh, the concerns for uh, those in your congregation and in our midst. Uh, Bob Wade, who is at Christ Hospital, we pray uh, healing for him and comfort for uh, his family. Uh, we also pray Christian love and sympathy to Kathy and Drew Smith on the passing of Drew's father and, uh, and the funeral this week. We pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit as a, a comforter and that you would uh, use us as your people as conduits of grace. We pray also for our community. Um, in the midst of uh, pain and confusion and injustice, uh, you, we just pray that your spirit of peace um, would guide us and would um, continue to shape not, not only us but our community and our world. Uh, we just ask for healing uh, where there needs to be healing. We ask for forgiveness where there needs to be forgiveness. And we ask for grace for each of us. And just, just as you've taken... The ugly sin and humiliation uh, in our story this morning, we pray that you would take that in our city and turn it into something that is greater than we could have even imagined. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.